Job 29. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, tonight we hear the closing arguments. The prosecution of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar has rested. Job has so far been his own defense attorney. He's made his own defense. He comes down now to the last three chapters of, of his speaking. And after this, Job will fall silent. But we, uh, we are not the jury ourselves. I know I said, ladies and gentlemen, of the jury, but that's not really us. The reality is the Lord is both judge and jury in this case. And Job has rightly been talking to the Lord. He keeps turning his thoughts back to the Lord and pleading his case before the Lord and wondering why he's getting no response. We'll see the final few verses of that tonight. We, you and I, were witnesses. We're in the courtroom. We're watching this whole proceeding going on. Now, in the last few chapters, Job has wandered a little bit from the primary focus, and the judge has allowed it, seeing as it has been relevant to the case. Sunday, chapter 28, we heard a poetic discourse of man's search for that greatest of all treasures, wisdom. And at the end of chapter 28, Job said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. And as we talked about Sunday, we recognize it's just wonderful, a verse you should all have memorized, I encourage you to at least, Colossians 2 verse 3, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's where we are called. He is the one to whom we are called if we desire or seek wisdom. And it's ironic to me that in my own life and in the lives of so many of us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as believers in Jesus Christ, that we turn to so many other sources to seek wisdom and help. But Christ is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And He invites us to come directly to Him and to gain wisdom from Him. Last Wednesday night, before that, in chapters 24 through 27, we saw Job also leaving this defense long enough to take up the cause of other people. To cry out for the vindication and justice of all manner of people. Innocent people who are hurting, who need vindication. Back in chapter 24, Job himself said, Why do those who know him not see his days? Chapter 24 and verse 1. Asking that all-important question so often asked, How long, O Lord? How long until the innocent are, are vindicated? And Jesus Himself said in Luke 18, verse 7, Will not God bring about justice for His elect who cry out to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? How long, O Lord, will it be? Then a related question, I've been recently asked, Don and I were having a conversation about this, what is the actual timeline of Job, of the book of Job? How long is this conversation going on? Is it a matter of hours, a matter of days, is it months? How long? Well, we finally stumbled upon, I believe, an answer for this. And it's at the beginning of chapter 29 where it says, Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in moons gone by. Your Bibles probably say months gone by. The word there is moons in the Hebrew. Oh, that I were as in moons gone by, as in the days when God watched over me. Moons gone by. The Israeli calendar, even today, the calendar in Israel, the Hebrew calendar, is a lunar calendar. And they go 360 days in a year, not 365. And they, they go by the rising and setting of the moon. And so for Job to say, as in moons gone by, that's what he's referring to, months. Job looks back and, and he's saying, it has been months, at least, at a minimum, since I was in a good place. So his sorrow here is longer term, perhaps, than you may have thought. This has been going on quite a while. His sorrowful situation for at least many moons gone by. Now he's going to go on in this closing argument, and there are three primary areas we'll look at tonight over the next three chapters. Each chapter is a specific area. The first is going to be his previous glory. When he looks back over all those moons to when he was in a great place. Job's previous glory. The second chapter we'll look at, which will be chapter 30, his present humility. His fall from glory, as it were. And then the third chapter, which will be chapter 31, his proven integrity, where he takes up his cause one last time before the Lord lays it all out and tries to prove that he's a man of integrity and goodness and does not deserve what's happening to him. Part 1. 
Job's previous glory. Oh, that I were as in months gone by, verse 2, as in the days when God watched over me, when His lamp shone over my head, and by His light I walked through darkness. His lamp shone over my head. By His light I walked. I like Job's words there. They remind me of Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I like what Dobson said years and years ago. I heard this about Psalm 119.105. Your word is a lamp to my feet. He said it's not a headlight that shines out miles ahead. It's a lamp. The actual Hebrew lamp is a little, looks like a tiny little clay pot. It's very small. It would hold oil and a little wick would stick out of the end of it. And that's what the psalmist was using as an example of the word of God. A lamp to my feet. One step at a time in our lives. One step at a time. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, quoting from Deuteronomy, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so Job here is declaring, God's light was my right. That is my, my right of way, the right way to go. God always showed me where to go. He was always there for me. Job is declaring, I I have heard from the Lord, and He has illuminated the path of righteousness on which I walked. Now Job's problem here, it's not as much a pain problem as it is a time problem. In, In the going by of all these moons, of all these months, remember what Job's immediate response was to losing everything? His family, his livestock, his livelihood, even his health. Job's response in Job 121 was worship. The Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His immediate reaction to pain was to praise the Lord, to worship the Lord, to fall down before the Lord. And according to Job's own words, he had walked in darkness before. He had known hard times. The difference between then and now is in the hard times before, God was always a lamp. But time is going on here. And it's getting difficult for Job to see that lamp. For even the most faithful among us, when we go into hard times, worship may be our first sense, our first reaction. But as time continues, and as pain goes longer term, often worship can turn into wondering. And wondering can slide into worrying that possibly God is walking away from us. That He's not as close as we need Him to be. And we might ask the question here, what God, what are you doing? What have you been doing? In many months gone by, Job is sitting here in this pain, he's crying out to you, and there is no response, zero absolute silence from a God who had given His word to Job before. Who had led him through darkness before. What are you doing, Lord? I think the most immediate answer is distance training. You may have heard before, faith is not a sprint. Becoming a Christian, giving your life to Jesus is not about a quick run around the corner and you're home. Faith is a long distance run. When I ran track in high school, it was when the coach obviously hadn't planned anything for practice and said, go run the streets of Mission Viejo. And for two or three hours, we weren't allowed to be back. You know, my friends and I, we we would just run down to the local candy store. But we're supposed to be running. I was a sprinter. I was a hyper runner. You might find that surprising. But I was the guy, when the gun went off, I wanted to be done with the race as fast as possible. Let's get to the finish line immediately. Coaches say, no, if you want to be able to sprint, you also have to run the distance. And that's what God is doing here in Job. That silence that Job is experiencing. Well, I'll let the Bible tell us about this. Revelation 14, verse 12 says, Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Here's the perseverance of the saints. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. Their labors, their deeds, the perseverance of the saints. Those who last, who stick it out, who go the distance. James said in James 1.12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Faith for the long haul. 
Job is not hearing a thing from the Lord. You can hear a pin drop at many moments through this soliloquy, through this discourse. God's not speaking. But He knows what He's doing. By the way, I I just heard this the other day and I thought this was really good. God's silence is far more difficult for our Father than it is for us. Oh, it's hard for us. But the Lord loves us so much that as we're in that place, we're going, Lord, what's going on? Why won't you answer? Why won't you show me? Why won't you give some kind of sign here? And the Lord sits back in silence as a father, knowing what's absolutely best for us. But as a father myself, when I have to sit back and watch my kids go through painful stuff, it's the most difficult thing in the world. I would far rather just go through it myself. So the next time you're sitting there going, I don't know why the Lord's not being more clear. Please understand, it's very likely that it's more difficult for Him knowing how you're feeling, but also knowing what's absolutely best for you and for me. He wants us to say, like Paul said, I have finished the course. 2 Timothy 4.7 I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to those who have loved His appearing. And and my friends, this is not just trite, you know, teaching. This is the reality of our Christian faith that it is a long haul proposition and God is saying I want you to walk it out. I am with you. Even in the quiet times. I know it's hard, but trust me, you will be better for it in the long run. So Job remembers those days when the lamp shone over his head. Verse 4, he says, As I was in the prime of my days. The word prime there is interesting. It's literally autumn. In the autumn of my days. What's in the autumn? Harvest time. It's when the fruit is yielded. When all the labor of the planting and the work and the tending and the tilling, all the way through the hot months of the summer, ultimately here comes harvest time, and then that's when all the fruit is seen. And Job's saying, as I was back when I was enjoying the fruit of all my work. He says, verse 4, when the friendship or counsel of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me and my, my children were around me. When my steps were bathed in butter (laughs) and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. Well, that's interesting. I don't know that I want my steps to be bathed in butter. But what Job is expressing here is opulence. The fruit of his labor was out in oil and butter in the Mideast, a picture of wealth. When all was going good for me, when everything was right. And in verse 7, when I went out to the gate of the city, When I took my seat in the square, the young men saw me and hid themselves. The old men arose and stood. The princes stopped talking and put their hands to their mouths, saying, Shh, Job's here. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to their palate. For when the ear heard, it called me blessed. When the eye saw, it gave witness of me. What Job's talking about here is that he was the E.F. Hutton of the day. Literally, when Job spoke, people listened. When Job went out to the square and sat down literally in the seat of the judge, all the people gathered around. Here comes wise Job. Here comes Job who has the answers. Oh, his words are a blessing to us. And he would come into the square and the young men would flee from him because, boy... It's as though his righteousness, at least Job saying about himself, his righteousness was so apparent, like little cockroaches scurrying away. <laughs> the young said, oh, I don't want to be around that. And the older men, the nobles, oh, they were so impressed with Job. He sat in the seat of justice. He meted out wisdom and counsel, and the people listened. Verse 12, he says, Because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me. That is, the people who were dying I helped. And I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. In other words, I wore it well. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. I was father to the needy. And I investigated the case which I did not know. And I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. 
Job is recalling this about himself, that he was judge and counselor, that he was mediator and advocate, physician and healer, father and rescuer. What a guy! Very impressive, Job. And the reality of Job's most internal problem finally emerges here where we can see it for what it is. It's not sin, mind you. Job was upright. Job was righteous. But it's something that is on the front edge that it leads us in the direction of sin. Job has eye trouble. He has eye trouble. I'm a great judge. I was a great counselor. I was the mediator. I was. It's all about I, I. And if you track through all the times he says I. Speaking about what a great person he was. And eye trouble, again, it is not blatant sin for which Job needs to repent. It's egocentrism. That Job, for all of his righteousness, sat at the heart of Job. There's too much Job in Job. That's the problem. And God sees it for what He is. Praise God. He loved Job enough to allow all this to take place. That He might keep Job from that place of heading right into sin. Boy, wouldn't it be great for God to block the result of our arrogance. The result of our selfishness. To stop us before we can act on our egocentrism. And the problem is Job needs to be lifted out of himself. We talked about this early on. The whole issue of repentance in Job's life is not from sin, but to God. He needs to repent. To repent to God. To turn to God and to get out of himself. And so the Lord saves Job from himself by even allowing all this stuff to go on. God intervenes. He allows Satan's attack. Satan, you know, thought to undermine Job. Thought to discredit God, but God's plan was different. It was time to surgically remove the eyes from Job. And to replace that with clear, unclouded, unobstructed vision of God Himself. Think about this. Job called himself judge and counselor and mediator and advocate and physician and healer and father and hope and savior and rescuer. He's talking about Jesus. But he's put himself in that place. Because Jesus is the great judge, the wonderful counselor. Jesus Christ, the mediator. The advocate, the great physician, our healer. The everlasting father to the fatherless. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is Savior and Rescuer. It's not, what a guy, Job. It's, what a God, Jesus. Job needs emptying out. Not because he's a bad guy. He is a righteous dude, through and through. But there's too much of Job. Verse 18, continuing on, he says, Then I thought, I shall die in my nest. And I shall multiply my days as the sand. My root is spread out to the waters and dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is ever new with me and my bow is renewed in my hand. Job fully expected to live long and prosper and be blessed and full. And he would cry at this point, This was not in my plans. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but had a good-sized retirement before the most recent recession. And you watched it all dwindle away, and you said, that was not in my plans. I had set myself up so that I could, as Job says, I like this phrase, I will die in my nest, in the comfort of my own home, multiplying my days as the sand. Ah, oh, it's, it's all good. And I thought it would all be good. I'd die surrounded by my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren and all that. It'll be wonderful. And then he gets slammed here. Absolutely slammed. You know, what's interesting is Job will live long. Job will be prosperous again. Job will be blessed when he finally gets it, when his eyes are diverted from his self-sufficiency and finally reset on God-sufficiency. Complete dependency on the Father. Verse 21, he says, To me they listened and waited, and kept silent for my counsel. After my words, they did not speak again. After my, and my speech dropped on them, they waited for me as the rain. They opened their mouth as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they did not believe, or in other words, when they were in a negative place. 
and the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose a way for them and sat as chief and dwelt as a king among the troops as one who comforted the mourners. He's saying, man, I lifted people up. I figured things out. To me, they listened to my words, my speech, and all of this, again, it's problematic. Job, people are going to you for the answers. And they were. People going to Job rather than to the Lord. I was thinking about this last week, that back in, I guess it was 82, that Keith Green died. Keith Green, that, that Christian artist, extraordinary musician and prophetic man, a prominent Christian voice, especially in my generation, late 70s, early 80s. So he was going around doing his concerts and, and, and offering his albums for free and, and allowing people, inviting people to just come live in his house, living out his faith in, in pretty dramatic ways, pretty unsettling ways for the organized church of the day. And his plane went down, small plane. A friend of his was a pilot and a couple of his kids just going out for a joyride one day and the plane crashed. And a lot of people said, why? I mean, what could he have done? Think about the, the links, the, the, the music that we lost and, and the words that we no longer would have and, and what Keith Green could have done with his life. And right after that, I believe I shared with you all before, Cheryl went to a, uh, um, it was the sailing of, of a mercy ship, the Anastasis, out of Long Beach Harbor. So she went to a youth rally that was there. This was like two days after Keith Green died and Melody Green, his wife, showed up and she spoke for him. He was supposed to do a concert there. And in her speaking, she quoted this verse, John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. And she compared Keith to a grain of wheat. If it dies, it bears much fruit. And she was saying there will be more fruit because of his death. Now here's the problem. This verse was not written for Keith Green. This verse was written for Jesus Christ. And there were far too many people in that day who were looking to Keith Green. And I really wonder if part of the reason God didn't bring the plane down and bring Keith on home was to stop people from going to Keith instead of going to Jesus Christ. No slam on Keith Green, wonderful faithful follower. No slam on Melody, went on to continue doing great things for the Lord. But the focus is not Keith Green, and the focus is not Job. The focus is Jesus alone. Anyone other than Jesus is at best only a mirror image of the real thing. And yet Jesus said, and I I find this verse tragic, John 5.40, You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You're unwilling to come to me. Remember this, gang. We are just reflectors of His glory. We are not generators of our own. We reflect the glory that exists in and of Jesus and never in and of ourselves. And this is the problem with Job. Is he, uh, he, he says it. My glory is ever new with me. And everybody's listening to me. And everybody came to me. But there was no life in Job except for the presence of God. No wisdom in Job except for the wisdom of God. If there's any good word, it's Jesus' word. If there's any good counsel, it's God's counsel. Any worthy voice, it's His voice. Now I kind of wish Job had concluded his remarks back at the end of chapter 28. You know, when he said, The fear of the Lord, that's wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. And if he had stopped right there, we could have said, Good job, Job. But he continues on in self-defense. And he looks back and he sees what his life was like. And now he considers where his life is today. And so far, Job's closing arguments are only proving God's case. Part 2, Job's present humility. Verse 1, chapter 30, But now those younger than I mock me, whose fathers I disdained to put with the dogs of my flock. Indeed, what good was the strength of their hands to me? Vigor had perished from them. From want and famine they are gaunt, who gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation, who pluck mallow by the bushes of leaves, a type of leaves there, and whose food is the root of the broom shrub, which is a very, a very bitter root. 
They're driven from the community. They shout against them as against a thief, so that they dwell in dreadful valleys and holes in the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes they cry out. The word cry out there is literally bray, like donkeys. Under the nettles they're gathered together. Fools! Even those without a name, they were scourged from the land. And he's describing all these people that he had at one time helped. And he calls them fools and continues on saying, And now I have become their taunt. I have even become a byword to them. They abhor me and stand aloof from me, and they do not refrain from spitting at my face. What are you saying, Job? Man, I am the lowest of the low. I used to help these low-life nothing fools. And now they're laughing at me. And now they're making fun of me. As Job considers his present humility, he's gonna, I'll give you three more things here just under this heading. And the first one is personal acrimony. Personal acrimony, personal bitterness, anger, hatred that's, that's leveled at Job. He describes the poor. He describes the orphan, the needy, the outcast young men, people he had previously rescued, and he says, they have now turned on me. And it's a bitter pill to swallow. Those I helped, those I saved are now mocking me, taunting me, abusing me, and spitting at me. And I read that and I think, wow, ain't that just the way of the world? I'm sure this has never happened to any of you. But you help someone. You go out of your way for someone and they end up biting you for it. And they end up coming back again. Now, I'm not a bitter old guy myself, but it's just kind of a reality and I've seen it again and again over the years. Humanity has a way of quickly turning around and biting the hand that feeds us. Crucifying the one who saves. And yes, Job in his description does somewhat prefigure Jesus who came into the world to save it who cared for the poor and the needy, who healed people, who put his life out there for everybody. And what did they do in response? They nailed him to a cross. However, in Job's sorrow, Job points to himself. In Jesus' sorrow, he points to the Lord. And there's a powerful message in this for us. Jesus saying in Matthew 24 or 27, 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And by the way, let me just remind you, if you don't already know this, I was in the hospital actually the other day talking with some people and someone mentioned Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and they were asked, this person was asked the question in Israel by some Jews who were saying, why does, if Jesus is the Messiah, why does he say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's what the Messiah was supposed to say. What do you mean? Psalm 22, verse 1 begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus spoke those words on the cross, and I I realize there's theology out there, and I agree with it, that says part of the reason Jesus spoke those words was because there was a sense of, of being left, a sense that God turned His back because Jesus became sin on the cross for us. But there's something more powerful than that, in my estimation. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 and from the cross He's saying, I am Messiah. It's me. Read Psalm 22. The whole thing describes the crucifixion written by David a thousand years before Christ. And so Jesus begins that quote. The psalm describes what happened on the cross and Jesus is tying Himself to being Mashiach, the Messiah. From that place on the cross... What does Jesus do? Does He look down at the people and say, I can't believe you're taunting me. No, He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Luke 23, 34. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke 23, 46. Job's pointing at all these other people and how they have disdain for Him. And Jesus, rather than pointing at us, is pointing again to the Father. And by the way, it was the ultimate sign of disdain and disrespect to spit in someone's face. And Job says, they're now spitting at my face. It's about a low, as low a thing as you could do to somebody, especially in Middle Eastern culture. Job says, they're spitting on me. And of course, they spat on Jesus. I, I, as a kid, from my youngest days, I've always hated spitting. I've always just hated it. Um, 
And primarily because I remember my dad when I was real little sitting me on his knee and saying, because I spat at my brother, saying, don't you realize that's what they did to Jesus on the cross? That was all I needed to hear. I never spit at my brother again, intentionally. And I never mean to spit on all of you. It just kind of happens. But Matthew 26, verse 30 says, They spat on Him. They took the reed. They began to beat Him on the head. The disdain that was shown to Jesus, in spite of the fact that Jesus came to save, it's, it's truly breathtaking. Well, Job, this one-time highly respected man, is getting such treatment. Verse 11, he says, Because he has loosed his bowstring and afflicted me, They've cast off the bridle before me. In other words, my leadership is shot. They've cast off the bridle. He's saying they no longer follow my lead. All these people that I was a leader of before now are laughing at me, spitting on me, taking it out on me. He says, on the right hand, their brood arises. They thrust aside my feet and build up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They profit from my destruction. No one restrains them. As though a wide, through a wide breach they come. Amid the tempest they roll on. Terrors are turned against me. They pursue my honor as the wind, and my prosperity, or my nobility is the literal word there, and my nobility has passed away like a cloud. And Job is just, he's looking at this, thinking about his past glory, and now his present humility, and he's saying, this is just, it's mind-boggling to me. And again, That is how quickly people can turn against you who you have helped. But I need to tell you something, and this is so critical in Christian living. So critical to to walking out that long-distance, long-haul relationship that we're called to. If I serve other people, either for their sake or for my sake, I will eventually suffer for it. I will eventually feel just like Job. I have done everything I can for you, and this is the thanks I get. Or I've done for you, for my own benefit, and, and, and it's not getting me anything that I thought it would. If I serve for those two reasons, for others or for myself, I will suffer for it. But if I serve others for Christ's sake, regardless of their response, I will be strengthened in it. And I found this to be true time and time again. If we get into ministry or service for ourselves, or even out of a sense of compassion for other people, When they turn on us, as they inevitably will, it's painful and heartbreaking and often causes people just to give up serving altogether. Well, if that's the way they're going to be, I don't want to be a part of that. If that's the way that church is, then I'm done. But if I serve for the sake of Christ Jesus, it doesn't matter how I'm treated. It doesn't matter what I receive. It doesn't matter if I serve for Christ's sake alone. I'll be stronger for it. Jesus said, Remember the word I said to you, John 15, 20. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus says, Be prepared. People are not going to appreciate what you do, but they didn't appreciate what I did. So it's going to be all right. And Paul reminds us, Romans 8.35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, nakedness, peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Not through the reaction of other people. Not through what we might get out of it. But through Him who loved us. Job is acrimonious against those who he helped. Angry with them. Frustrated. They're now spitting on Him. Jesus was compassionate and forgiving to those who spat upon Him. Even though He had helped them and they had turned on Him, He still loved them. And we too can be that way. Compassionate forgiving those who disdain us through Him who loved us. Job describes then that personal acrimony. Secondly, he describes his physical agony, verse 16. And now he says, My soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have seized me. At night it pierces my bones within me. 
and my gnawing pains take no rest. By a great force, my garment, or my flesh is what he's describing here, is distorted. It binds me about as the collar of my coat. He's cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. And Job is going to describe this physical agony a little bit more in a few verses yet to come. But he's saying, my bones and my flesh are in constant pain. You know, there's little pain that is as painful as the pain inside your bones. I mean, when you have an illness or a sickness, or if you get some kind of a... Maybe it's not the greatest example in the world, but I was talking to a friend of mine. His son got a tattoo right on his side here. And I'm like, oh, wasn't that tender and painful? And he said, well, the painful part wasn't actually the skin. It was when he hit the bone. That was when it hurt. Now, I point that out to say Job is saying at night, that's how his bones feel. My bones hurt. His pain is so excruciating here. It's absolutely terrible. But notice he begins this physical agony by saying, My soul is poured out within me. My soul. For all the physical pain that he expresses, far worse for Job is the mental anguish. The mental anguish of it. Our answer today is psychology. You know, psychology. The study of the psyche. Or the soul. And psychologists come along and they they want to patch up the soul. Let's do something to patch up or or, or help out the psyche. Let me remind you of these ancient words. When the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And for those, it's not just a physical anguish Job is experiencing. It's mental anguish. And when we are in that place of mental anguish, and it may be over a relationship that you are just anguishing, it may be over a painful situation in a family, and physically you're fine, but your, your mind can't let go of it, and you're going round and round about it, and you've got this mental anguish. Your soul is poured out within you. The Lord restores the soul. And Job wants that. In fact, the third issue he raises in his present humility is providential absence. Providential absence. Personal acrimony, everyone's against me. Physical, mental agony... I'm in pain here, suffering, and providential absence. Job asks, where is God spiritually? Verse 20. I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer. I stand up and you turn your attention against me. You have become cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up to the wind and you cause me to ride. You dissolve me in a storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house of meeting for all living. Yet, does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand? Or in his disaster therefore cry out for help? Have I not wept for the one whose life is hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? When I expected good, then evil came. When I waited for light, then darkness came. And then some more physical stuff. He says, I am seething within and cannot relax. We pointed this out several weeks ago. What he says is my inward parts are boiling. Okay, you can think about what he's talking about there. Days of affliction confront me. I go about mourning without comfort. I stand up in the assembly and cry out for help. Which indicates over all this time that he actually went to church. He actually went at least to the assembly of people and asked, please help me, help me. And no one would lift a finger. I've become a brother to jackals and a companion of ostriches. What is he saying? Jackals and ostriches out in the wilderness waste. Off in the distance, alone, separated, distant. My skin turns black on me and my bones burn with fever and therefore my harp is turned to mourning and my flute to the sound of those who weep. Where are you, God? In all of this pain and humility, where are you? Part 3. Job's proven integrity. Now he steps into the final words of his closing argument. And his own sense of personal integrity rises up within him as he begins to hedge his future bets on his own righteousness. 
In other words, he's going to lay it all out now. I'm going to prove that I'm not worthy of this and I should be justified. And I'll warn you, his language gets a little PG-13. Verse 1, he said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What is the portion of God from above or the heritage of the Almighty from on high? Is it not calamity to the unjust and disaster to those who work iniquity? Yeah, that was a common thinking of the day. If you did bad stuff, you got a bad result. So Job's bad result must be because he did something bad. And he's saying, I haven't. I'm good. I have integrity. I can prove it. He says, does he not see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened after deceit, let him weigh me with accurate scales and let God know my integrity. If I've done wicked things, of course I deserve punishment, but I haven't. Now in this chapter, Job lists 11 different sins and their sentences. And in each one he's saying, I have not done that, therefore I should not deserve the sentence that comes from that. The first one he lists is right there in verse 1, lust. Lust. I made a covenant with my eyes, how then could I gaze at a virgin? Job, in essence, is saying, I watch what I watch. (laughs) I'm careful with what my eyes see. Now, this is especially key for us guys. Although in our country, it's interesting that women are more and more increasingly lured by lust. But with with guys especially, with all of us truly, Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. You've heard that verse before. The heart is more deceitful and is desperately sick. And lust is a heart problem. However, it's a heart problem that enters through the eyes. Through the eyes to the heart. But if it goes through the eyes, doesn't it have to go first to the brain and then to the heart? And there's something to this. The truth is I I can't change my heart. It's desperately sick. I have no power within me to change the heart. God does. God can change my heart. He can soften it. He can heal it. He can restore it. I can't. But I do have control over my mind. I can control what comes into my heart. Lust comes through the eyes, into the mind, and into the heart. And that's the way it it works. And so what I'm saying here is if the heart is desperately sick, and I get that, and it's always craving lust, and I can't change that, what I can do is put in a filter. And my mind is the filter. My soul is the filter, which as we talked about, is why the soul is the battleground for so much. We were uh, in here a couple, I guess it was two weeks ago on a Wednesday night, pretty cold night, and the furnace was just blasting cold air. And we couldn't figure out why. And Tom went out and looked, and there was plenty of propane in there. We scratching his head. And finally he came walking in with the filter, and it was caked. The air couldn't get through. We can change the filter, which is the mind. If my mind is the filter, the lust may come... If the lust is not coming through the eyes and not getting to the heart, I'm filtering it out. I can control what gets in. Psalm 101 verse 3 says, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I won't look at worthless things. I'm not going to give credence or visual acceptance to worthless things. And Psalm 101.3 says also, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. And I think Psalm 101, verse 3, should be plastered above every movie theater in the country. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. Man, what does that say about our adoration of Hollywood? I don't adore Hollywood. When was the last time you went to the movies? And paid nine or ten bucks to watch that stuff. The silver screen plants images in my mind that travel to my heart, take root, and cause destruction. My boys are, are into movies. They're, they're, they love to watch movies almost every night of the week. And my, my in-laws have Netflix, and so they can go online and they can download movies. And we have very, very stringent rules about what movies you can download and watch. But we have had this conversation over and over and over. Look, you know, Hayden's saying, Dad, I know it's violent, but I'm not going to do that. Hayden, if it's coming in, it's getting in. 
and it's taken root in your heart, and you may not even recognize it at first, but it's getting in there. And Job says, I do not lust. I understand my heart might have that propensity, but he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. I like that. My eyes and I had a conversation. And we said, we are not going to allow this. And I told my eyes, and they said, all right, I'm with you on this. I will not see these things. And and have we considered the hearts and the motives of those who make the movies? There's another thing. Oh, the movie's fine. What does the director believe? And you can't tell me that the director is not trying to get into his movie that which he believes, Avatar. I got an email. I I went and saw Avatar. And I was blown away by the special effects. And it's visually absolutely stunning. And then Kathy sends me a a video, Mark Driscoll from Mars Hill, and he's preaching, and and he says, Avatar is the most sinful, demonic, satanic movie I've ever seen in my life. And I watched it and I went, thinking back, and I'm starting to process and go, you know what, he's right. He's right. What James Cameron, the director, taught through that movie, a connectedness, a worshipful connectedness to the created things rather than to the creator. That's what the whole movie's about. And there's far more to it. I won't get into it right now. But the psalmist says, I hate the work of those who fall away. So why do we pay so much money to see the work of those who fall away? Anyway, you work that out. Think about it. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12, verse 2. Keep the mind renewed. Blow out that filter. Keep it clean. So that what your eyes see will not get through. You won't allow your eyes even to see that it might get into the heart second thing Job points out he says I haven't lusted that's not an issue for me I have integrity with lust I have integrity when it comes to the issue of dishonesty verse 5 if I've walked with falsehood and my foot has fastened or hastened after deceit let him weigh me with accurate scales let God know my integrity if my step has turned from the way or my heart followed my eyes Or if any spot has stuck to my hands, let me sow and another eat, and let my crops be uprooted. The sentence, I should lose everything. I should lose what I've put my time and energy and money into if I have acted dishonestly. But I haven't, is the implication here. The liar, the deceiver, most hurts himself. Because ultimately he becomes unable to discern the truth. Job says, that's not me. Third one, infidelity. Infidelity. Verse 9. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, may my wife grind for another and let others kneel down over her. PG 13 warning. When he says, let my wife grind for another, he's talking about grinding grain, and he's saying it's an absolutely menial task. Let my wife be in menial labor for someone else. But then he says, let others kneel down over her. And he is talking about sexual relations. If I have had an affair, if I have been adulterous, let my wife be taken by somebody else. He goes on and says, that would be a lustful crime. Moreover, it would be an iniquity punishable by judges. For it would be fire that consumes to abaddon or destruction and would cause and would uproot all my increase. It's amazing. Infidelity is almost common in our culture today. It's just the way it is. You turn on the TV, you go to the movies, that's what you're going to see. It's just completely accepted, completely normal, completely common. But few things the Bible says are more destructive than adultery more destructive and he goes on Job points this out in two ways he says it's destructive to the soul it's destructive to the soul Solomon in Proverbs 6.32 says the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense he who would destroy himself does it the soul because the sexual relationship is far more than a physical relationship. It is a union of souls. It is the two, the Bible tells us, becoming as one. But adultery adds in a third or a fourth or a fifth element or component to the soul. 
which is why it is so destructive. Thank God He is a restorer of souls. And for those of you who have struggled with this in the past, please know that God has the power, the ability, the capability to restore the soul when we come to Him. But something else can tragically be destroyed in the process, and I need to point this out because Job does, and that is not just the soul of the individual, but the increase. The increase, he says in verse 12, it would uproot all my increase. He's talking about his kids. He's talking about his offspring. Infidelity destroys. Does incredible damage. But but I haven't done it, he says. Now the next integrity issue is arrogance, which I think he's kind of bordering on. But, verse 13, he says, If I have despised the claim of my male or female slaves when they filed a complaint against me, what what then could I do when God arises? And when He calls me to account, what will I answer Him? Did not He who made me in the womb make Him? And the same one fashion us in the womb? He's saying, those who worked for me are no different than me. And I treated them no differently than I would treat myself or my family. I cared about all people equally. I I was not arrogant to other people. Now, let me point something out to you, and this may come as a shock to you, but did you know that everyone is better than you at something? You may be great in certain areas. You may have certain gifts or talents or abilities. There's someone who's better than you at something. There's always someone out there that's better than us at something else. And it's a good thing to remember, Paul says in Philippians 2.3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That'll quash arrogance. If we will look at each other and say, you know, if I can say, Rachel is more important than I am. Rachel is more significant than I am in God's kingdom. And I'm going to treat her that way. Not only is Rachel really going to like me, (laughs) but it keeps my arrogance at bay. Job says, I don't have a problem with arrogance. It's not my issue. Verse 16. If I have kept the poor from their desire, or have caused the eyes of the widows to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the orphan has not shared it, but from my youth he grew up with me as a father. And from infancy, I guarded her. Or I guided her. Verse 19, If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or that the needy had no covering, if his loins have not thanked me, and if he has not been warmed with the fleece of my sheep, and if I lifted up my hand against the orphan because I saw I had support in the gate, let my shoulder fall from the socket, and my arm be broken off at the elbow. For calamity from God is a terror to me, and because of His majesty I can do nothing. What's he talking about? Indifference. Indifference to those who are poor, who are in need, who are all around me. If I didn't care about any of them, man, let my arms be broken off. Why? Well, because if I haven't used my arms to serve and care, I don't deserve to keep them. Indifference. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Just think about this. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? The sin that caused Sodom and Gomorrah to fall. For God to destroy them. Our most immediate answer is sexual immorality, right? And that's got to be it. That's not it. Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease. And she did not help the poor and needy. The sin that caused the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was indifference to those in poverty. Ultimately, sexual immorality was rampant throughout the region, but the big problem, the main problem, the the foundation of it all, was they didn't care about anybody else. They had everything they needed. Arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, which sounds a lot like America. And then what about caring for the poor? Cold, callous, unmerciful indifference to the poor. If I don't use my hands and my arms to care, may they drop off, Job says. 
by the way, the largest U.S., I think this is so cool, the largest U.S. international relief and development organization is World Vision. World Vision is that started by its, its founder, Richard Stearns. And in his book, he wrote in the book called The Hole in Our Gospel, he said he began World Vision after realizing, quote, the church had the wealth to build great sanctuaries, but lacked the will to build schools, hospitals, and clinics. And we're building churches everywhere, and people are dying in their poverty. Why don't we do something about that? And he was concerned that the church didn't care. And so he began this organization. And what's phenomenal is Christians from everywhere started saying, I'll write a check. I'll get involved. I want to help the poor. He became this this mechanism, World Vision and Compassion International, another great organization, mechanisms for the church to begin to reach out. And the result is, in World Vision alone, 40,000 staff positions worldwide. World Vision has its work in every continent in over a hundred countries. All because one man said, we cannot be indifferent to the poor and the needy. And by the way, may we as the Bridge Fellowship not be indifferent as well. It's putting hands and feet to the call of the Lord that we care. Job says, have I been indifferent? No! Then my integrity is intact. Verse 24. If I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, he's talking about greed. Number six, greed. He says, if I looked at the sun when it shone or the moon going on or going in splendor and my heart became secretly enticed and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth, that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment, for I would have denied God above. Idolatry. Greed and idolatry. Specifically, idol worship of the heavens, worshiping the sun, the stars, the moon, looking to them for guidance, wishing upon a star. He says, I haven't done that. That's not my issue. It's not my problem. I haven't had a problem with that. Verse 29, he says, Have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy or exulted when evil befell him? No, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life in a curse. In other words, vindictiveness. I have not been vindictive. Job would say, I emulate 1 Corinthians 13.5. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. You do me wrong, I will not return wrong to you. You hurt me, I will not hurt you back. You do something that's against me, I will not be against you. I'm not going to play the vindictive card. Job says, not my problem. I haven't done that. Verse 31. Have the men of my tent not said, Who can find one who has not been satisfied with his meat? The alien has not lodged outside, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. I have not been, Job is saying, I have not been inhospitable. I'm taking care of all the people who work for me, people who travel through, they have a place to stay. I've always liked this verse, Hebrews 13.2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Which is a little spooky. <laughs> I mean, think back. Have you ever taken care of someone and then they just disappeared and wondered, could that have been? Is that possible? Abraham entertained God And a couple of angels? Was he aware? Interesting. In hospitality, not a problem for Job. Verse 33. Have I covered my transgressions like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom because I feared the great multitude and the contempt of families terrified me and kept silent and did not go out of doors? Number 10. Hypocrisy. I have not been a hypocrite. I have not held or hidden some secret sin. Now what's interesting to me is he compares himself to Adam. Have I covered my transgressions like Adam? What did Adam do as soon as he sinned and his eyes were opened? He covered up. And then he and Eve went hiding to the point that God had to say, Hey, where are you guys? Adam, what's going on? I hid myself. Why? Because these leaves don't cover enough. What's the problem? Adam, hiding in his sin. And Job says, I haven't done that. Note that. Job refers to Adam before Moses wrote the book of Genesis. 
Job knew about Adam. Job knew the history of creation at least 500 years before Moses came along and wrote it down. It was already circulating before Moses put pen to parchment. Now, in all of these statements, if you track this through, and we don't have time to do this tonight, but compare Job 31 to Matthew 5 through 7, because Job 31 is Job's Sermon on the Mount. And there are several things that Jesus talks about that Job covers as he's trying to lay out his innocence. I have not been vindictive. I have not been inhospitable or, or hypocritical. I have not been greedy or idolatrous or indifferent or arrogant or, or in bringing about infidelity or dishonest. I have not struggled with lust. I haven't done any of these things. And Jesus covers many of those in the Sermon on the Mount. So it's an interesting parallel. But through all this, Job is just declaring, I am not guilty. Verse 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Behold, here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me and the indictment which my adversary has written. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it to myself like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps like a prince. I would approach him. There's still too much Job in Job. He is still standing on his own strength, on his own laurels, on his own accomplishments. He's working hard to defend himself. And by the way, self-defense tends to signal pride. When we've got to defend what we're doing or who we are. Now Job is going to add one more piece of evidence as he wraps up his case, and that is poor stewardship. He says, If my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together... If I've eaten its fruit without money or caused its owners to lose their lives, let briars grow instead of wheat and stinkweed instead of barley. (laughs) Job says, I've been green, man. (laughs) Sorry. I have taken care of the land. I have done everything right. He actually, it's interesting, he adds this, he taps it on at the end adding his care for the land and his good ownership, it's almost as if he's grasping for any final shred of evidence he can to lay out there as he's trying to prove his case. And then, the words of Job are ended. (sighs) Thank goodness. He lays down his case. He closes his arguments before God. And note this. He signs his final statement. Did you catch that? Look back at verse 35. The second line there, he said, Behold, here is my signature. You need to note this. Here is my signature. The word for signature there is not a word. It's a letter. It's the last letter of the Hebrew Aleph Bet. It is the Tav. The Tav. If someone was illiterate, they could use this. It would be the equivalent of signing an X, you know. In the days when people, you know, maybe the settlers who were illiterate, but they're out there panning for gold, and they had to sign for their gold, and, and so they would just market it with an X. And so you could say that's what Job is doing, but there's more, I believe, here. Why does he put the Tav instead of his name? Job is not illiterate. And if Job wants to turn in these closing arguments and all of his court documents, and hand them over to the Lord, why not sign it, Job? Put my name on there. He doesn't. He just writes, Tav. It's a cross. The Tav is a cross. The original Hebrew script that Job would have written in is a cross. The Tav over time has shifted and changed a little bit, but if you look back to the way it was originally written, it was a cross. Now, I find that fascinating. He couldn't have known. He couldn't have realized what he was doing. But as he hands in the final paperwork, the mark he leaves on the dotted line in that ancient script is the mark of the cross. And my friends, that is our best defense. That's our only defense. We can hand him stacks and reams of all the things we've tried to do well. The problem is, in all of our closing arguments, are reams and reams of sin. But we can hand it over to the Lord and all we mark on there, all we need, all we will ever need is the cross. We mark it on there 
You don't need your signature. We need the signature of the cross. For in the cross, as we sang, in the cross alone I glory, nothing of my own I give, only that which Christ has offered for my soul that I may live. Lord, as the words of Job are ended, we again are reminded of the cross of Jesus, of our one defense. And even as we pray to You tonight, Lord, we pray by the sake of the cross, because Jesus died at the cross and shed His blood and took our punishment on Himself. We come before You with boldness before the throne of grace, seeking mercy and help in time of need because of the cross. Oh Lord, thank You. Thank You for Jesus. And may we never try to defend ourselves except, as Paul said, to choose only Christ and Him crucified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.